Welcome to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Each week we examine the latest appeals decided by the Connecticut Supreme Court and the Connecticut Appellate Court. We focus on three areas of law, criminal law, personal injury law, and family law, each sponsored by a firm that concentrates in that type of law. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and get the newest episode each week and stay up to date on the latest case law. You can also visit our website, ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com, and register to get an alert every time a new episode is released. And now, let's get into the latest decisions after a quick word from our first sponsor. Next up, criminal law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a criminal defense or civil rights attorney, the lawyers at Ruan Attorneys should be the first firm you turn to. Our lawyers handle criminal cases in every courthouse in the state, from juvenile cases through arguing and winning in the Connecticut Supreme Court, and they welcome your referrals. Our trial team is led by attorney Jim Ruane, one of the few board-certified criminal trial specialists in the state. And Ruane Attorneys has the experience and relationships to handle any type of criminal case you throw at them. Our civil rights team is led by attorney Dan Lage, twice selected as an award-winning lawyer by the Connecticut Law Tribune. What's more, Ruane Attorneys is always available to consult with fellow attorneys on criminal law issues at any time. Put the power of over 500 five-star reviews to work for your criminal case referrals by trusting Ruane Attorneys with your referral. Visit RuaneAttorneys.com for more information or email our team at referral at RuaneAttorneys.com. Coming up on the Connecticut Case Law Podcast's Criminal Docket, three cases, one where the defendant shows an expectation of privacy, another where jury instructions are challenged, And then finally, an ineffective assistance of counsel claim that isn't a habeas? All on this week's Connecticut Case Law Podcast for the week of March 30th, 2021. We will begin with the big one, State versus Lions. Your citation is AC42807. Judge Bright, on this opinion, this was argued back in October of 2020, officially released today, March 30th. Here are your facts. It's January 21, 2017. A magistrate signed a federal search and seizure warrant that authorized the search of a building at 349 Noble Avenue in Bridgeport. The building at this address was part of a duplex. The other side of the duplex is 351 Noble Avenue. The warrant did not authorize search of that address. On February 1, 2017, state and federal agents executed the warrant and entered through the rear of 351 Noble Avenue, the unauthorized address. The search revealed weapons, controlled substances, and the presence of the defendants. The residents inside of 351 Noble at the time of the search, who claimed to be his residents, were arrested and charged. They filed motions to suppress the evidence found therein on the grounds that the warrant was not authorized for the residents. As such, the search and seizure could not be justified by any warrant exception and must be suppressed. The trial court, in its memorandum of decision granting the motions, found that the entrance to 349 and 351 were separate in their appearance. For instance, one entrance had bright red steps and the other with maroon-colored steps, each located at opposite ends of the building. There were two separate driveways on each side. The porch on the right had green columns and green trim around a red door. The number 349 was visible from the street affixed on a column. Moreover, testimony from Detective Slaby, one of the officers as part of the 20-person task force, confirmed that the warrant was only for address 349 and that 351 
was a separate and unconnected unit. He also testified that he never saw the warrant prior to executing it. When he arrived, other officers were already in the building. The structure was large, had multiple rooms, multiple floors. There was a gun, two bags of marijuana found in a third floor bedroom found by another officer. The gun was on top of the bed when he entered the room. IDs with a photo of the defendant were in the room. One was listed as Sean Brown, the other as Gavin Lyons. Both had the defendant's picture. There was a sign hanging in the room that read, quote, I do not give consent to search, unquote. God bless this young man. A receipt from Metro PCS was found with the name Sean Brown on it. Two smaller amounts of marijuana were found in, in an additional gun. He was informed that the defendant was found in the bedroom when the SWAT team entered. A large amount of contraband was found in the room where Green Walters, another co-defendant, was also found. Another co-defendant, Mr. David Gordon, testified that at the time of the search, he had resided at 351 Noble for 10 years. His identification stated that was his address. The police broke down the locked door when executing the warrant. All the rooms in the homes had locks on them. He rented 351 as a whole house and collected money from the people whom he rented the rooms to. He would give out keys to residents and then replace lost keys. 349 and 351 have separate driveways, porches, number displays. You cannot enter 349 through 51 and vice versa. Different residents lived at 349. Defendant Green Walters testified that she resided at 351 for almost a year. She was in bed when the warrant was executed. Her door was locked, which required the police to knock before entering. She had mail in her room addressed to her at 351 Noble that the police confiscated. The building had two driveways, separate electric gas meters. You cannot access one from the other. The addresses are displayed for each unit. The other co-defendant, Prince Gordon, testified that at the time of the search, he had resided at 351 for nine years. His bedroom was on the first floor and his door was locked. The police knocked on his door when executing the warrant. His driver's license, passport, birth certificate, and pistol permit were confiscated by the police. His license was in his wallet in the bedroom and listed 351 as his address. 349 and 351 had separate driveways, gas and electric meters. You can't enter each one from the other, vice versa. Now, based upon this evidence and the testimony, the trial court determined that Lyons and the other defendants had met their burden of proving an expectation of privacy necessary to challenge the warrantless search and seizure. The court addressed state's claim that despite having the wrong address, the search and seizure was executed in accordance with the description of the place described in the affidavit. The court found, however, that the affidavit's contents were not available to the executing officers, and there was no evidence that the warrant was prepared in anticipation of 351. The warrant clearly and unambiguously identified the place to be searched as 349, with no further description, and thus the warrant was presumptively unlawful. Because the state did not argue any exception, the court granted the motions to suppress. The state appealed, and here we are. Now, the overarching standard of review is of a trial court's findings and conclusions related to a motion to suppress is the clearly erroneous standard, which is viewed in light of the evidence and the pleadings in the whole record. The court's not going to disturb the finding of facts. However, when credibility of a witness is not the primary issue, the appellate court will engage in a scrupulous examination of the record to ascertain that the trial court's factual findings are supported by substantial evidence. 
if the legal conclusions of the court are challenged, the appellate court's review is plenary as it must determine whether they were logically correct and whether their conclusions were supported in the facts set out in the memorandum of decision. Claim one, the state now appealing first claims that the trial court erred in finding that Lyons had met his burden of proving an expectation of privacy in the area's search and that he had, a, that he had standing to proceed with that motion to suppress. Here are some additional facts for your consideration. At the hearing, Lyons did not testify and called Slaby, the detective, as his sole witness. Slaby testified that he waited for the SWAT team to clear before entering. He then went to the third floor, at which time Lyons was already on the first floor with the rest of the residents. He stated that there was a door to the room on the third floor, but he could not remember if there was a lock on the door. In this room, he found paperwork, a passport, an ID, and a wallet and a pair of jeans. The SWAT team informed Slaby that Lyons told them that third floor room was his. Slaby indicated that Lyons was wearing a bathrobe and slippers when he was arrested. On cross-examination, the state challenged his testimony on the grounds that the document used to refresh his recollection was for a man named Sean Brown. On redirect, Slaby testified that the other IDs found contained the name Gavin Augustus Lyons, which contained Lyons' photograph. The trial court found that Lyons kept important documents in this room and that Slaby recognized that only Lyons resided in the third floor bedroom and that even though Slaby could not remember if Lyons had a lock on the door, other residents confirmed that all of the rooms did. It further found that David Gordon rented the rooms to each individual and paid the rent in total after collecting all the money. Accordingly, the search of Lyons' room was an intrusion into the place he had manifested an intention to keep private. In reaching its conclusion, the trial court rejected the state's claim that residents of a multi-unit dwelling have less protection under the Fourth Amendment. Judge Bright notes that our Supreme Court has rejected the distinction between the societally recognized privacy between those living in a multi-unit dwelling and those able to afford to live in a single-family home. He cites State v. Kono, 324 Connecticut, 80. The court also found that even an overnight guest has an expectation of privacy protected under the Fourth Amendment in her or his host's home. Thus, even though no one could say how long the man in the robe and slippers had been inside the home, he certainly slept in the home overnight where he had such garments for sleeping. On appeal, the state challenges the court's determination of privacy on three separate grounds. One, the court relied on inadmissible hearsay when it found that agents informed Slaby that Lyons was found in the third floor bedroom and had confirmed that the room was his. Two, the court took improper judicial notice of facts not testified to when it noted that Slaby had reported property with Gavin Augustus Lyons' name on it to the superior court. And three, the court made factual determinations not supported by the record when it found that Lyons had met his burden of showing that he had reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, there's a different standard of review regarding that principle. To determine whether a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy, the defendant must satisfy the CATS test, which has a subjective and an objective prong. So one, whether the defendant manifested a subjective expectation of privacy with respect to the invaded premises, and then two, 
whether that expectation is one that society considers reasonable. The determination is made on a case-by-case basis, and the burden is on the defendant to show that reasonable expectation. For all of you who remember law school's cats, it's 389 U.S. 347. Whether a defendant's actual expectation of privacy is one that society is prepared to recognize involves a fact-specific inquiry into all relevant circumstances. Although this court will defer to the trial court's factual findings, whether those findings establish standing is a question of law over which the appellate court has plenary review. The capacity to claim the protection under the Fourth Amendment does not depend on a property interest, permanency of residence, payment of rent, but upon whether the person who claims the protection has a reasonable expectation of privacy. Moreover, the fact that a person does not have exclusive use of the area does not bar having that reasonable expectation of privacy that furnishes standing to object to a seizure. A person can have sufficient interest in a place other than his or her home to enable him or her to be free in that place from unreasonable searches and seizures, so long as it is a place that society is prepared to recognize because of a code of values, customs, and civility. Court cites State versus Jones, 113 Connecticut Appellate, 250. In Minnesota versus Olson, for example, 495 U.S. 91, the U.S. Supreme Court held that a person's status as an overnight guest alone is sufficient to establish an expectation of privacy in the home that society would recognize as reasonable. The court explained that we are at our most vulnerable when we are asleep because we cannot monitor our own safety or the security of our belongings. Because of this, we seek out a space of privacy when sleeping. Thus, even though a guest does not have control over a home, a guest has a legitimate expectation of privacy nonetheless. Now, regarding the state's first claim that the expectation of privacy was based on inadmissible hearsay, Lyons counters that the state cannot show any harm resulting from the evidentiary ruling, specifically claiming that the evidence was introduced without objection and that the statement was soundly supported by Slaby's testimony of what he personally observed or knew. Lyons points to certain evidence not challenged by the state support in support of his claim, such as the men's clothing found in the third floor bedroom, personal items such as the passport and an ID found inside jeans which were in the bedroom, and the fact that the policy that the police did not find any ID for Lyons or Sean Brown in any other locations in the house or in the third floor bedroom and that Slaby took a bathrobe and slippers from Lyons when he was arrested. Absent structural error, the mere fact that a trial court rendered an improper ruling does not entitle the party challenging that rule to obtain a new trial. The ruling must be harmful to justify that kind of relief, and harmfulness is material, irrespective of whether the ruling is subject to review under an abuse of discretion or plenary review standard. If the ruling at issue is not of constitutional dimension, the party challenging the ruling bears the burden of proving harm. If the error is not constitutional, the appellant has the burden of establishing that there has been an erroneous ruling, which was probably harmful to him. The court will not reach the merits of a claim where the appellant has not briefed how he was harmed by the allegedly improper evidentiary ruling, and this court has declined on multiple occasions to review claims where the appellant has failed to analyze harmful error in the principal brief. 
The state's brief in this case, as accounted by Judge Bright, is devoid of any analysis how it was harmed. The bare assertion that the court abused its discretion by allowing the testimony fails to explain the harm caused by the alleged improper admission of hearsay. Accordingly, this court is unable to conclude that the evidence had any bearing on the outcome of the suppression hearing, and as such, the court won't answer whether the court's the trial court's ruling was an abuse of discretion. Well, that was quick. Let's get to our second claim. Uh, regarding the state's second claim that the trial court improperly considered Slaby's inventory of property found in the third-story bedroom, the following additional facts are relevant. The trial court set forth the items found in that bedroom of 351, noting that the task force located and seized passports and ID cards. The court cited the trial court file and docket number, which pertained to the charges against Lyons and referenced the inventory number followed by a footnote which stated that Slaby filed an inventory of seized property in the Superior Court listing the items discovered. The trial court file includes a uniform arrest report filed by Slaby along with the investigation report where Slaby stated that when searching Lyons' bedroom, he located the Sean Brown ID and two Jamaican passports which had Lyons' name on them. When asked, Lyons stated that his ID was in his jeans pocket. This ID was recovered and contained his name. They recovered pieces of mail with the name Sean Brown on them. The file also included a prisoner property receipt, which noted that Lyons had a bathrobe and slippers taken upon his arrest. It also contained an inventory of property seized bearing the docket number pertaining to Lyons' case with references to the passport, birth certificate, social security card, and a document from the Jamaican Ministry of Foreign Affairs for Lyons. The trial court file also contained a motion to return the seized property that was filed by Lyons in which he sought the return of his birth certificate, social security card, and the passport seized. During the hearing, the inventory of seized property was referenced, and when asked about what paperwork Slaby found in the third floor bedroom, he referred to the passports and ID card. His memory was refreshed by reviewing the inventory and confirmed that a passport had been seized. The prosecutor asked that the document be marked as an exhibit for identification, and Lyons' attorney noted that the document was in the clerk's file. This review is essentially an evidentiary ruling, subject to an abuse of discretion standard of review. To establish reversible error, the state must prove both an abuse of discretion, and the harm that results. The question is not whether the court would have exercised its discretion differently, but rather limited to whether the trial court's ruling was arbitrary and unreasonable. The doctrine of judicial notice excuses the party having, having the burden of establishing a fact from introducing formal proof of the same. The notice will take place of the proof. There are two types of facts considered suitable for the judicial taking of notice. One, those of common knowledge, and two, those that are capable of accurate and ready demonstration. Courts must have some discretion in determining which facts fit into these categories, and it saves time to, to judicially notice borderline facts so long as both parties have had an opportunity to be heard. However, notice to both parties is not always required the appellate court has attempted to distinguish between matters susceptible to explanation or contradiction, 
and which should be given notice without giving the affected party the opportunity to be heard. For example, matters of established fact, such as court files where the accuracy cannot be questioned, pause for effect, may be judicially noticed without affording a hearing. Court cites Scalora versus Scalora, 189 Connecticut Appellate 703. Therefore, the trial court may take judicial notice of files reported to the superior court in the same or other cases. Here, the court took judicial notice of only the documents in the court file. Accordingly, it was not required to give the parties notice and an opportunity to be heard before it did so. Regardless, the state cannot claim surprise that the court referenced the inventory as the document was discussed at the hearing and specifically referred to by the state. Furthermore, the state's argument that it was improper for the court to take judicial notice of the inventory because the contents were controverted facts is without merit because the state has not identified any dispute over the contents and the court relied on what was in the file to simply identify the items seized by police, not to conclude whether the information was true. For example, the fact that the court noticed the birth certificate, social security card, and passport for Lyons did not mean that the court accepted the documents as genuine. What was important to the court was the nature of the documents kept by Lyons in the third floor bedroom over which there was no dispute as to their nature. Additionally, the state failed to brief how it was harmed by the court's evidentiary ruling. Therefore, in the absence of that analysis, there won't be a conclusion that there was an abuse of discretion in taking judicial notice of the inventory of seized property filed by Slaby. Moreover, even if the state were to prove an abuse of discretion in taking that judicial notice, it would be difficult to find any harm resulting from that conclusion because the report contained properly admitted testimony and other references concerning the specific documents, and in particular, there were multiple instances in which Slaby testified regarding the documents found in the third floor bedroom. Accordingly, any possible error was harmless. Regarding the state's third claim that the trial court's finding that Lyons possessed a reasonable expectation of privacy challenges the court's factual determinations, specifically alleging that the court made factual determinations unsupported by the record when it found that Lyons had met his burden by a preponderance of the evidence that he had that expectation of privacy at 351 Noble Avenue, where he expected to be secure from intrusion due to his keeping the most sensitive and important documents at that location. The claim requires little discussion in light of the court's findings in claims one and two. The record demonstrates that inside the third floor bedroom, Slaby found Lyons' personal items. Although one of the IDs contained a different name, it had Lyons' photos on it, and the other IDs were found with his name and photo on them in that room. Moreover, the IDs for both Sean Brown and Lyons were not found anywhere else in the house. There was testimony showing that the items were found in the third floor bedroom and Lyons filed a motion seeking the return of his passport, social security card, and birth certificate, which had been seized during the search and of which the trial court granted with respect to the social security card and birth certificate. Accordingly, the trial court's finding that Lyons had a reasonable expectation of privacy was not erroneous and was supported by sufficient evidence in the record. Moreover, when Lyons was arrested, he was wearing a bathrobe and slippers, which, as Judge Bright has already determined, supported a conclusion 
that at the very least, he was a guest at 3.51. Given that the search was commenced at 6 a.m., and at the time Slavey entered, the residents were gathered downstairs, and that men's clothing and Lyon's identification was found in the third-floor bedroom, the court reasonably could infer that at the time of the search, Lyons was sleeping in that bedroom, either as a resident or as an overnight guest. Thus, as the state's Supreme Court has made clear, an overnight guest has an expectation of privacy, for which the trial court could have found that the evidence presented was sufficient to prove that Lyons was at least an overnight guest. And so in this case, ladies and gentlemen, Lyons met his burden of proof in establishing by a preponderance of the evidence that he had a reasonable expectation of privacy in 351 Noble Avenue. That brings us to our second case this week. Out of the Supreme Court, State versus Ramon A.G. Your citation is SC20358, Justice Khan. This was officially released July 28, 2020, and makes its debut on the podcast today. Here are your facts. The victim in this case was romantically involved with the defendant in August of 2012. However, the relationship deteriorated, as they sometimes do, and on March 18, 2013, a protective order was issued prohibiting the defendant from having any contact with the victim. At this time, the defendant was then living with his mother, and notwithstanding the protective order, the victim visited the defendant during a gathering at the defendant's mother's home. That evening, the victim admitted that she had taken a set of keys from the defendant's home and threw them into the bushes as she walked home because she, quote, felt like something was going to happen, unquote. The victim testified that after she discarded the keys, the defendant emerged from a nearby vehicle and proceeded to attack her. She stated that the defendant then emptied the contents of her backpack looking for the missing keys and allegedly took the backpack with him as he left. A bystander witnessed the attack and called 911. The victim was released from the hospital the next day. The victim further testified that the next morning, the defendant texted her asking to exchange the backpack for his mother's keys and that when she received the backpack, the cash inside of it was gone. The defendant, acting against his lawyer's advice, testified in his own defense. He told the jury that he approached the victim and asked for the keys back, at which time he alleged that the victim began swinging at him. He asserted that he attempted to grab her hands, but that in the course of doing so, ended up falling because of the ice on the sidewalk. He claimed that he tried to get up and leave, but that the victim grabbed his foot, impeding his ability to do so. He testified that he shook his foot loose and eventually walked across the street back to his friend's car. He stated that the victim's injuries may have been caused by his attempt to escape, but that he did not intend to assault her. The defendant was arrested and charged with robbery in the first degree in this case, assault in the second degree, and a criminal violation of a protective order. On the first day of trial, the defendant filed a one-page request to charge seeking an instruction to the jury on the defense of personal property. He did not identify the evidentiary basis for this request or indicate to which charges it even related. The next day, the trial court discussed preliminary instructions with counsel in chambers. That same day, the court made a statement on the record that it was going to grant the defendant's request to charge the jury on the defense of personal property. A set of draft instructions subsequently produced contained a defense of personal property instruction only with respect to the charge of robbery in the first degree. 
The court held a formal charging conference following the close of evidence. At the time, the court asked both parties if they had the chance to review the instructions and specifically the personal property defense instruction. Both parties indicated affirmative. The defense counsel affirmed that they had noticed the court's use of the model criminal instructions from the judicial branch website. When asked if either party had anything else to propose, both parties responded no, and the defense counsel again affirmed that they had sufficient time to review the draft instructions. During his closing argument, defense counsel stated that the defense of personal property is a complete defense to robbery in the first degree, and then reviewed the elements of that defense in detail. Defense counsel briefly mentioned the stolen car keys, but did not explicitly mention the defense of personal property as to the violation of the protective order and the assault. After charging the jury with instructions consistent with the ones approved before, the court asked whether there were any objections, and defense counsel replied that they had none. On the next day, the jury found the defendant not guilty of robbery and not guilty of assault in the second degree, but guilty of the lesser included included offense of assault in the third degree and guilty of the protective order violation. A few months later, the defendant was given a sentence of seven years for the violation of the protective order and one year for the assault in the third degree with three years of special parole. The defendant appealed, claiming that the trial court improperly declined to furnish an instruction on the defense of personal property with respect to the assault. The appellate court found that the defendant's written request was insufficient to preserve his particular claim of error and that he had implicitly waived review of that claim under State versus Kitchens, 299 Connecticut 447. The appellate court ultimately affirmed the conviction. This court, the Supreme Court, granted the petition for certification to appeal limited to whether the appellate court correctly concluded that the claim of instructional error was not preserved, and then also if the answer to the first question is yes, whether the appellate court incorrectly concluded that the defendant implicitly waived any instructional claim under Kitchens. The defendant's sole contention with respect to whether his claim of instructional error was unpreserved is that his written request to charge adequately notified the trial court of the particular claim he now advances, that defense of personal property instruction should have been given with respect to the assault charge. The defendant asserts that he complied with practice book section 4216 and that any ambiguity relating to the scope of the request should be resolved in his favor under State v. Ramos, 271 Connecticut 785. Appellate tribunals of this state are not bound to consider claims of law that are not distinctly raised at trial. Whether a claim has been properly preserved will depend on a review of the record to ascertain whether the claim was articulated below with sufficient clarity as to place the trial court on reasonable notice of that same claim. Here, the trial court was operating under the belief that it had satisfied the written request to charge on the defense of personal property. On the basis of the record, court cannot conclude that the trial court and the state were given fair notice of the fact that the defendant took issue with this particular aspect of its instructions on assault. The trial court provided multiple drafts to counsel and expressly reviewed the proposed defense with counsel during the formal charging conference. However, the defendant correctly notes that the rules of practice permit criminal defendants to preserve claims of instructional error by filing a timely written request to charge. 
Nonetheless, appellate decisions have consistently rejected the suggestion that this provision, Practice Book 4216, allows defendants to rely on ambiguous language to preserve more specific error claims. Therefore, this provision allows a defendant to preserve a claim of instructional error, but the information conveyed must be specific enough to afford the trial court and the state fair notice of the particular defect that would be subsequently claimed on appeal. The defendant further claims that State v. Ramos established a legal presumption that requires the Supreme Court to resolve any ambiguity regarding the scope of the written request to charge in his favor. Now, in the Ramos case, the defendant requested an instruction on self-defense. However, as here, the request did not specify the count or counts at issue. The trial court ultimately decided to give the self-defense instruction with respect to the assault charge, but instructed the jury that self-defense was not a defense to the charge of having a weapon in a motor vehicle. On appeal, this court held that the challenge to the latter charge was preserved because the court read that the defendant's failure to specify which charge the defense was to apply to indicated that it had applied to both. However, Ramos is distinguishable from this case in two ways. First, the defendant here affirmatively disclaims any argument that a defense of personal property instruction should have been given for the violation of a protective order charge. Therefore, the defendant cannot maintain that his submission was a blanket request. Second, in Ramos, the trial court specifically considered whether the crime of having a weapon in a motor vehicle should be given the self-defense instruction and purposefully declined to provide it. The record before this court contains no indication that the instructional error was ever brought to the trial court's attention. Thus, the court was never provided fair notice to remedy the error. So it follows that the defendant's instructional error was not preserved. The court considered next whether the appellate court correctly concluded that the defendant waived this unpreserved claim. This is a question of law over which the court has plenary review. Waiver is an intentional relinquishment or abandonment of a known right or privilege. It involves the idea of assent, which is an act of understanding. To waive a claim of law, it is enough if the defendant knew of the existence of the claim and its reasonably possible efficacy. Connecticut courts have consistently held that when a party fails to raise in the trial court the constitutional claim presented on appeal and affirmatively acquiesces to the trial court's order, that party waives any such claim under State versus Golding. Such a determination must be made on a close examination of the record and the particular facts and circumstances of each case. Here, the trial court granted the defendant's request to charge without qualification and expressly indicated that it had intended to incorporate that request in its proposed instructions. Additionally, the court distributed drafts of its charge and reviewed the language with defense counsel on the personal property defense. During conference with defense counsel, the court highlighted the precise location of the relevant instruction and discussed the content with the lawyers. Throughout these proceedings, the defense did not voice any concern regarding the location, scope, or structure of that charge. Accordingly, through counsel, the defendant demonstrated his assent to the instructions. This conclusion is further supported by the fact that the defendant 
possessed a tactical reason not to pursue a defense of personal property instruction with respect to the assault charge. The defendant testified that the victim was the aggressor and that any contact between them was the result of his attempt to escape and that he never intentionally assaulted the victim. The defendant could reasonably have decided to forego the defense of personal property with respect to the assault charge because his recollection of the events would have been conceptually inconsistent with a legal claim that he had intended but justifiably used force against the victim to regain possession of the car keys. Accordingly, the instructional error claim raised by the defendant was not preserved as he willfully waived it at trial. And so that brings us to our final case out of the Supreme Court, State versus Davis, SC20335. Justice Keller officially released March 26th, 2021. Here are your facts. On December 9th, 2015, the defendant stabbed the victim, Joe Lindsay, multiple times in Hartford, where the two men had been together talking and drinking with a third man, Jamar Cheatham, the victim's friend. The defendant was charged with the victim's murder, and attorney Coffin was assigned to represent him. On March 29th, 2017, the trial court, Judge Dewey, conducted a pretrial hearing where the defendant rejected the state's plea offer. Also during that hearing, the defendant informed the judge that he no longer wished to be represented by defense counsel due to her failure to investigate certain information he had provided her to give him a copy of the state's discovery in a timely manner and had encouraged him to plead guilty while also alluding to the fact that he was guilty. The judge denied the withdrawal, finding that her investigatory process was not grounds for dismissal in light of her previous advocacy. However, the court asked the defendant to file a written motion in compliance with the practice book and constitution, which provided more detail for the basis of his request. The defendant was informed that he had the right to secure his attorney or represent himself if competent. On May 24, 2017, the defendant submitted a filed written motion to dismiss defense counsel, which asserted four reasons why she should be dismissed. Reason one, failure to meet professional and ethical standards. Reason two, refusing and allowing the defendant to view documents that would allow him to make an intelligent and informed decision as to where his best interests lie in A and his aid in his own defense. Three, failure to investigate information given to her. And then finally, a conflict of interest. On June 13, 2017, the judge determined that despite the reasons given and the defendant's belief that he was being pressured into a plea deal by counsel and her investigator, that he had not provided adequate grounds for dismissal. In response, the defendant argued that it took a year to get certain discovery materials. The court responded that investigations take time and that counsel had a reputation for honesty and reiterated that the defendant had not provided sufficient grounds for dismissal. During this hearing, the defendant did not address the conflict of interest claim made and the court never inquired into it, nor did the judge ascertain whether the defendant had finished arguing each of his claims before denying the motion and ending the hearing. Two years later, at the defendant's sentencing, the defendant once again raised the issue of defense counsel's alleged conflict of interest. He stated that on two occasions he had attempted to dismiss her because she was representing the son of the victim. In the sentencing court, Judge Gold asked defense counsel if there was anything else she wished to say, and she indicated that there was not. 
The judge commented on the defendant's failure, failure to express his feelings to the victim's family and how this did not put him in the best light. He was then sentenced to 50 years imprisonment and the conflict of interest claim was never inquired into. So claim one, the defendant's first claim on appeal is that Judge Dewey inadequately inquired into his bases for his motions. He argued that a sufficient inquiry required Judge Dewey to engage him in more than a cursory exchange regarding his complaints and to ask defense counsel about those complaints, which Judge Dewey failed to do. The state responded that Judge Dewey properly exercised her discretion in declining to conduct an extensive inquiry into the motions to dismiss defense counsel because the states made by the statements made by the defendant were made known to the judge, adequately explored, and demonstrably insufficient to justify dismissal, such that no further inquiry by the judge was required. Our standard of review, a defendant is not entitled to the appointment of a different public defender without a valid and sufficient reason, and a defendant cannot compel the state to engage counsel of his own choice by arbitrarily refusing the services of a qualified public defender. The case, State versus Gethers, 193 Connecticut 526. When reviewing the adequacy of trial court's inquiry into the defendant's request for new counsel, the Supreme Court reverses only for an abuse of discretion. The trial court has a responsibility to inquire into and carefully evaluate all substantial complaints concerning court-appointed counsel. The extent of the inquiry lies within the discretion of the court. If the defendant's assertions fall short of a substantial complaint, this court has held that the trial court need not inquire into the reasons underlying the defendant's dissatisfaction. The court has held, however, that a conflict may handicap the defense and a complete breakdown in communication between client and counsel are sufficient reasons to warrant removal. As previously noted, the defendant raised four grounds for removal in his complaint and Judge Dewey properly exercised her discretion in denying the motion for removal because the complaints were not substantial. This court has previously held that a defendant's disagreement with defense counsel regarding the strength of the state's case is not a valid reason to dismiss counsel, even if the defendant may have felt pressured to take the state's plea deal because he was told by counsel that there was no chance of winning at trial. The court cites State v. Simpson. Likewise, the defendant's complaint that counsel took too long in providing him with a copy of the state's discovery and that the failure to investigate the information he had given her was also insufficient grounds for dismissal. The record shows that by the time of June 13, 2017, the date of the hearing on the defendant's motion to dismiss counsel, the defendant had received a copy of the requested discovery and informed the court that all investigations were complete. As for the defendant's claim that counsel violated professional and ethical standards, Judge Dewey had no duty of inquiry because the defendant offered nothing more than vague assertions and did not specify as to what or how the standards were violated. So accordingly, the court finds that Judge Dewey adequately inquired into the complaints underlying the defendant's motion to dismiss counsel. The defendant next claims that the trial court on two occasions inadequately inquired into defense counsel's possible conflict of interest when the defendant raised the issue. Now, this is interesting. The first claim was raised before Judge Dewey, 
Then two late years later at sentencing, Judge Gold. The conflict of interest was regarding defense counsel's representation of the victim's son, which to Dan Lage is a huge no-no. Neither judge asked the defendant or counsel any questions about this alleged conflict of interest. The state does not dispute the judge's duty to inquire, but rather argues that both judges discharged their respective duties of inquiry. It is a fundamental principle that the loyalty of a lawyer to his or her client's cause is what the Sixth Amendment's guarantee is about. In cases involving potential conflicts of interest, this court has held that there are two situations under which the trial court has a duty to inquire. One, when there has been a timely conflict objection at trial, or two, when the trial court knows or reasonably should know that a particular conflict exists. To safeguard a criminal defendant's right, the trial court has an affirmative obligation to explore the possibility of conflict when it has been brought to its attention in a timely manner. In such circumstances, the court must investigate the facts and details of the attorney's interests to determine whether the attorney suffers from an actual conflict, a potential conflict, or no genuine conflict at all. The question is, bef- is therefore a question of law over which the Supreme Court has plenary review. In the present case, the defendant's conflict of interest allegation in his motion to dismiss, defense counsel constituted a timely and unmistakably clear objection. Therefore, Judge Dewey should have at least made some inquiry into the nature of the alleged conflict. The court cites State v. Martin, 201 Connecticut 74. Likewise, when the defendant complained to Judge Gold that defense counsel was representing the victim's son, Judge Gold had a duty to inquire regarding the facts surrounding this claim and to determine whether counsel was representing the victim's son, and if so, whether this adversely affected her ability to represent the defendant. The state argues that Judge Dewey satisfied any duty by holding the hearing on the motion to dismiss defense counsel, at which time the defendant was allowed to argue in support of said motion. The state further contends that the defendant did not mention the conflict during the hearing and that Judge Dewey reasonably could have surmised that the conflict arose from the other articulated complaints regarding deficient representation. However, the court has repeatedly stated that the trial court's duty to explore the possibility of conflict when such conflict is brought to its attention is an affirmative duty that can be discharged only by questioning the defendant and counsel as to the claimed conduct. Moreover, there is no merit in the state's contention that Judge Gold fulfilled his duty by asking defense counsel prior to imposing the sentence if she had anything further to say. Even though defense counsel is under an ethical obligation to report any conflicts of interest to the court, her failure to speak at this time did not discharge the court of its inquiry duty. If the court was not required to conduct an independent inquiry into these allegations, then the law would not have imposed such a duty on the courts. If this had been a case where there was an absence of any reason to believe there was a conflict, then the court would have been allowed to rely on defense counsel's representation that no conflict existed. However, here, defense counsel did not assert that there was no conflict, and the court is not permitted to simply infer from the silence after the possibility of a conflict had been raised in open court that no such conflict exists. Judge Dewey and Judge Gold failed to inquire into the defense counsel's alleged conflict of interest and accordingly, the court cannot determine on the basis of the record 
whether that allegation has any merit. Thus, in such situations, the court must remand the case to the trial court for determination of whether the defense counsel actually had a conflict of interest, and if so, whether it adversely affected her representation of the defendant. On remand, the trial court is therefore instructed to conduct a hearing to obtain answers to those questions. The burden is on the defendant to demonstrate the existence of the conflict. Now, an attorney may be subject to conflicting interests when interests or factors personal to him or her are inconsistent, diverse, or otherwise discordant with the interests of their client. To prove adverse effect, the defendant must demonstrate that some plausible alternative defense strategy or tactic might have been pursued but was not, and that the alternative defense was inherently in conflict with or not undertaken due to the attorney's other loyalties or interests. The trial court following the hearing on remand must make findings of fact and conclusions of law in writing to the office of the appellate court for the court's review at that time, depending on those findings, the Supreme Court will determine whether it is necessary to reach the defendant's remaining claim on appeal. So in conclusion, the trial court had a duty to inquire into that conflict of interest. Failing to do so was grounds for a remand and essentially, first time here on the podcast, an appeal is frozen, pending more information. So maybe we'll see this again later on down the road. Maybe the Supreme Court will release an opinion so that I can give it to y'all when you tune in to the podcast. So for my boys, Rich Rockland, Ryan McKean, and Jay Ruane, this is Dan Lage, Connecticut Case Law Podcast, where we read the cases so you don't have to. Until next week, stay safe. Peace out. Next up, injury law cases. If you know someone who has been injured, Connecticut Trial Firm can help. Our lawyers handle car accidents, malpractice, dog bite, and premises liability cases across the state of Connecticut. Our lawyers have achieved multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. Our trial team has the experience and the resources to make a difference. Connecticut trial firm attorneys are always available to consult with fellow attorneys on injury law issues at any time. Put the power of over 124 five-star reviews to work for your personal injury referrals by trusting the team at Connecticut trial firm. Visit cttrialfirm.com for more information or call us 24-7 at 860-471-8333. Hi. It's Connecticut personal injury attorney Ryan McKean here from Connecticut Trial Firm. And the bad news is this week, there were no Connecticut tort law decisions rendered by either the Connecticut Supreme or Appellate Court. The good news is, I'm giving away a copy of my new Connecticut tort law book, which covers every Supreme and Appellate Court tort law decision from 2017 through June of 2020. And you can get that by going to my website, cttrialfirm.com slash Connecticut hyphen tort hyphen law. Again, that's cttrialfirm.com slash Connecticut hyphen tort hyphen law. I'll be giving away one copy of my book to a lucky listener. First come, first serve. Uh, Can't wait to send it to you. Hope you have a great week. Next up. Family Law Cases. 
If you know someone who needs the advice of a lawyer who focuses exclusively on divorce and other family matters, Rich Rockland is your guy. Rich handles cases all across the state of Connecticut, including the state appellate court, and welcomes your referrals. Rich will personally handle the case and will be attentive to all your clients' needs. Family litigation is stressful, and you don't need your referral stress being taken out on you. Rich's goal is to counsel his clients through a family law case with an eye towards resolving the issue in a manner that protects their interests while minimizing their stress and yours. If you would like to discuss a referral of a family law matter, please contact us at 860-357-9158. We have virtual consults available and in-person consults in West Hartford Center and welcome the call from fellow attorneys. Hello everyone, this is Rich Rockland reviewing Carton v. Carton. It was argued on January 13th and officially released on March 30th of 2021. This is an appellate court opinion relating to a dispute over alimony. The parties were uh, married in 1999 and had two minor children when they were divorced. In February of 2017, the plaintiff is Don Carton. He commenced this uh, dissolution action, and the marriage was ultimately dissolved in 2018. <coughs> Excuse me. The defendant well, was found more at fault for the irretrievable breakdown of the marriage of the plaintiff, but neither party was awarded alimony, and the marital property was divided between the parties. The court additionally found that the defendant willfully violated the automatic orders and the May 15, 2017 court orders, and such granted the plaintiff's PL motion for contempt. Um, the defendant was required to pay reasonable attorney's fees for the cost of the motion of contempt. This appeal followed, and during the pendency of the appeal, the defendant filed a motion for articulation regarding the court's decision to make no award of alimony. The trial court denied the motion, and the defendant filed a motion for review with the appellate court, which was granted, and uh, they issued an order for the trial court to articulate um, the party's earnings capacities at the time of judgment and the factual legal basis for its conclusion with reference to the factors set forth in 46B82A. The trial court responded to the appellate court order stating that at the time of dissolution, the plaintiff had gross annual earning capacity of $350,000 and a current income of $41,000. The sole source of income at the time was severance and unemployment compensation. The defendant was found to have annual gross in income of $150,000. In determining alimony, the trial court assessed the credibilities of the party's testimony, reviewed the proposed orders, and the party's written closing argument, and reviewed the evidence before it. Based on that review, the trial court determined that it was within its discretion to decline to award alimony to either party, given the conduct of the defendant, the similar standard of living that each party would be able to continue and to enjoy, the employment, wise financial decisions, investments made by each party during their marriage, which resulted in substantial savings for their retirement, the children's post-secondary education pursuits, the good health of both parties, the fact that both parties were well-educated with significant employment experience, work history, and employability, and the defendant came to the marriage with approximately $20,000 more than the plaintiff, and the parties grew their estate together. Despite the defendant's spending and hoarding habits, the lack of accountability for money spent once the plaintiff filed for divorce, the division of the assets, and the agreed-upon parenting plan did not warrant an award of alimony to either party. The standard of review in a case like this um, is that the appellate court won't disturb the trial court orders uh, unless there was an abuse of legal discretion or if the court's findings have no reasonable basis in the facts. The appellate review is limited and a finding of fact is clearly erroneous when there is no evidence on the record to support it or when there's no evidence to support it after reviewing the entirety of the record. Or if there is evidence to support the conclusion, if the court is left with a firm conviction that a mistake has been committed, it may find an abuse of discretion, but every reasonable presumption in favor of correctness should be made. 
The defendant argues that the court focused on her alleged bad behavior and gave scant attention to the issue of alimony and why it decided not to award even nominal alimony. Given that this was a long-term marriage involving two middle-aged people, the court gave no attention to her sublimating herself for the plaintiff's financial betterment during the marriage or a superior earning capacity. The plaintiff argues in response that the court properly applied the statute and considered the evidence before it. The trial court considered the factors enumerated in the state in the statute, assessed the credibility of the party's testimony, and reviewed the evidence before it when determining that no alimony award should be made. Under the statute, the trial court was required to consider all evidence, the length of the marriage, the cause for dissolution, the age, the health, the station, the occupation, income, earning capacity, vocational skills, education, employability, the state needs of each party, and in the case of the minor child being awarded to one parent, the desirability, feasibility of such parents securing employment. In, in its memorandum of decision, the trial court concluded that the defendant was more at fault for the breakdown of the marriage. Her testimony regarding any additional money received from outside sources, such as the defendant's mother, shoebox money, and beach house rentals, was not credible. And both parties were sufficiently capable of upkeeping their standard of living and providing for themselves, despite the defendant's spending habits. Therefore, the trial court determined that no alimony was necessary. The defendant challenges none of these factual findings. The court considered the statutory elements and all evidence presented by each party. Therefore, the court did not abuse its discretion by declining to award alimony to the defendant. The court then undertook a, uh, an analysis of various cases cited by the defendant and distinguished them all and noted that because the trial court had undertook a pretty seasoned and reasoned analysis um, concerning the alimony and all of the factors relating to it, that the court didn't abuse its discretion and distinguished all of the various cases. Um, the holding was that it follows that a potential inability of a party to meet its expenses and debt obligations after dissolution does not create a hard and fast rule that requires the trial court to make an award of alimony. Uh, in conclusion, the record in this case supports the conclusion that no award for alimony was warranted and the court was within its broad discretion in declining to make such an award. Do you want to get into social media marketing? Unsure of where to begin? The Firm Flex DIY plan was created for small firm and solo lawyers who want to start social media marketing for their firm but can't commit to the large budgets many agencies charge. In just five minutes a day, with the help of the Firm Flex coaches, you get daily ideas, weekly themes, hashtags, and stock images you can use to post on social media and market your firm. With a private and vibrant Facebook group you can always turn to, the Firm Flex DIY plan gives you the ultimate control over your marketing. By using the Firm Flex DIY program, as well as our weekly coaching and industry leading hacks, you can set your social media up for success, all for around $3 a day. Try it today at GetFirmFlex.com slash DIY. Hello, everyone. It's Rich Rockland. Appellate uh, Court de Decision um, officially released March 30th of 2021, Mecca v. Mecca. Uh, this case is uh, an appeal by the defendant from a denial of his motion to open the judgment of dissolution. Here's some facts. The uh, parties were married in 2000. June of 2015, the plaintiff's uncle died, and in December of 2015, the plaintiff forwarded an email to the defendant containing details of a complaint filed in Canada by the plaintiff and other members of her family contesting his will. The complaint alleged that her uncle had been manipulated into executing a will that excluded his family members. The gross value of his estate was approximately um, $5.8 million Canadian dollars, and as such, the dispute was disputed over four years. In June of 2017, the plaintiff instituted this dissolution, and on February 20, 2018, the marriage was dissolved. 
Under the terms of the separation agreement, the defendant agreed to waive any right to title, interest, in and any proceeds received by the plaintiff in the future as a result of pending litigation involving the estate of plaintiff's uncle. On December 14, 2018, the defendant filed a motion to open the judgment of dissolution, alleging that the judgment was obtained as a result of fraudulent misrepresentations made by the plaintiffs as to her, in that the financial affidavit failed to disclose her receipt of inheritance that had already happened as a result of the will contest. The defendant further alleged that the plaintiff failed to list her interest in the estate action during the entire pendency of the dissolution action and made material misrepresentations at her deposition on January 23, 2018. The trial court denied the motion, finding that the plaintiff disclosed her possible interest and disclosed what she knew of the existence of the claims in Canada. The defendant chose not to read the documents and not to make a claim waiving it in the separation agreement and that there was no fraud. The defendant argues that the trial court abused its discretion by applying an incorrect legal standard in denying the motion open. He argues that the court improperly assigned to him a duty of due diligence and failed to consider the proper elements of fraud in a marital dissolution action. In an appeal from a denial of a motion to open, the appellate court is limited to the issue of whether the trial court acted unreasonably and in a clear abuse of discretion. When engaging in this review, the court will make every reasonable presumption in favor of its action. The manner in which its discretion is exercised will not be disturbed so long as the court could reasonably conclude that it did. As to his first claim that the def defendant makes concerning the estate, the plaintiff was required to make an investigation of her assets using any readily available information and disclose the results of that investigation. The plaintiff counters that the defendant's argument ignores the fact that her interest in the estate was an intangible asset properly disclosed in advance of the judgment and separately negotiated as an express provision of the separation agreement. The defendant claims that he was erroneously assigned a duty of due diligence. However, in making this claim, the court finds that he has mischaracterized the applicable law, which requires a continuing duty to disclose pertinent financial information until the judgment of dissolution is final. The court's conclusion when denying the motion did not place the duty of due diligence on the defendant. Rather, the court acknowledged that a party to a dissolution action cannot ignore documents that were delivered to him only to claim later that the disclosed potential asset was fraudulently withheld. The defendant had ample time to review the plaintiff's disclosure here, and the trial court record reveals that the plaintiff emailed the defendant the estate complaint in December of 2015, and an additional disclosure was made in 2017. Accordingly, the trial court found that the defendant had validly waived his right to a potential asset after judgment for dissolution was rendered in 2018. The court further notes that the potential asset issue was subject to a degree of uncertainty as to the availability and value. The trial court addressed the uncertainty of the estate in finding that the process for such a dispute would be lengthy and neither party would be capable of determining whether the plaintiff was to receive any assets at the end of the litigation. As such, the record supports the trial court's finding that the potential asset was timely disclosed as an intangible asset. Therefore, the defendant's waiver in the agreement was not the result of fraud, and the trial court applied the proper legal standard and was within its discretion in denying the defendant's motion to open the judgment of dissolution. Uh, the court did not abuse its discretion in denying the defendant's motion to open. The defendant also claimed that the trial court abused its discretion by failing to consider as relevant a pattern of fraudulent conduct on the part of the plaintiff. Conversely, the plaintiff argues that the defendant failed to establish any such pattern, including during the PL period. Given this court's discussion previously, it is clear that the defendant's claim was without merit. The plaintiff moved, provided ample disclosure, and the trial court's finding that there was no fraud is supported by a review of the record. The plaintiff's potential asset and the defendant's waiver over any potential claim of that asset in their separation agreement were valid, because the estate litigation did not end until a year after the dissolution, and therefore it would have been impossible for the plaintiff to predict the value she would receive from this litigation. Thus, the court was well within its discretion in denying the motion to open. In conclusion, the court determined there was no fraud in disclosure, and the denial of the defendant's motion to open was soundly within the discretion of the trial court.
Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get alerted every time a new episode is released and to give us a five-star rating. You can also watch this podcast on our YouTube channel each week if you prefer to watch in the comfort of your office or stream it on ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com. The Connecticut Case Law Podcast is sponsored by Ruane Attorneys at Law, the Connecticut Trial Firm, and Rich Rockland Law. Attorney Jay Ruane, Connecticut Jurist Number 415988, is responsible for the content of this advertisement. See you next week.